When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Kieran, normally we have a little light-hearted chat here that reflects the football results on Saturday, but ain't happening. Um, <laughs> uh, you, can call me, you, you can call me immature and sulky as much as you want, but it's not happening. Um, <laughs> we've, got, we've got a lot of questions today, Kieran, haven't we? We have um, indeed, yes. Yes, but we've also got some news. So before we get into the questions, let's let's talk about these news stories. Um, one of which is very, very, very important. Probably the most important story we've had on this pod for quite some time. But first of all, uh, Kieran and I believe I believe you know some of these people. But US investors have completed their takeover of Ipswich Town. Yes, this was a uh, this, this was a story which has been doing the rounds now for just over a month. Um, and Ipswich Town have new owners in the form of Game Changer 20 Limited. But as always, it's, it's important to dig a little bit deeper. Um, it turns out that 90% of that company is owned by an, an investment organisation, which is ultimately funded by the Arizona State Pension Fund, whom uh, I'm not sure have got close connections to Ipswich. Um, 5% of the club is going to be maintained by the existing or the previous owner, Morris Evans, who, as part of the deal, has written off uh, an awful lot of money that was owed to him. Uh, I think think the relationship between Morris Evans and Ipswich Town fans was fairly toxic. Um, They felt he didn't do enough for the club. I think he felt that putting £100 million in was quite a lot. Yeah. so, uh, but he he didn't uh, he he didn't manage it very well in terms of uh, en- engagement, and I do think this is an important thing for anybody that's involved with the club. We, you know, we we've spoken to to a few club owners now, and, and those th- those that reach out to the fans and say, "Look, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. Come and have a natter." You've got you know brilliant people like Andy Holt all meet people for a pint and a and a pie uh, after the match, and and you, and you know uh, Accrington took a bit of a pasting yesterday noticeable no grumbles from the Accrington fans because they all buy into the project mm. so um and then we've got uh Brett Johnson and his uh, his colleagues who, who own the other five uh, percent um and they they already own a club called Phoenix Rising in the in the USL in in the states um and I think he's going to be that the public face so um 
we're hoping to get in contact with him. He, he has he has been in contact with the show, so it'd be nice if he's if he's keen to come on as a guest, um, and we take things from there. So it's, it's always a concern when when you have overseas owners, um, but they have uh, they might not have a lot of experience. I think they've done the right thing in that they've uh, they've appointed Mike O'Leary as the chief executive. He's ex West Brom. He's he's been the chief executive of a number of domestic uh, d- domestic companies as well so he's got experience of the industry the only slightly weird thing is that um morris evans owned 87 and a half percent of ipswich town football club the other 12 and a half percent is owned by another company called ipswich town plc mm. um and they have around about two hundred and twenty thousand shares i think and it looks as if there's going to be an offer coming in for the remaining shares in the club. Now, how much those shares are worth is very difficult to work out. I, I did do some sums and worked out it, it could be around about £1.20 each based on the figures we've seen quoted in the press to date, but it is all very uh, full of conjecture. Um, there's an awful lot of shareholders in Ipswich Town PLC. Most are owning sort of you know a dozen, perhaps 50 shares. So, so they're not going to get rich if this offer comes in and they do accept it. Mm. But it, it's it's a change, and I think they, you know, people get excited about this. Um, I, I think I, I think it's important to perhaps temper expectations. If the Arizona State Pension Fund uh, are involved, they're looking for a return on their investment. So it's which mm. town fans who think that it's going to be Father Christmas arriving, and um, you know those Mbappe to Portman Road stories are going to start <laughs> circulating, are going to be sorely disappointed. It's a bit of a change for Ipswich as well because they're a team or a club in the past that's always been associated with with long-serving regimes, haven't they? Yes. Uh, I mean, the Cobbold family were quite famous, I think, for, yeah. for many, many years for having the the best uh, wine cabinet in, in English football. You know, they're, you know, they're very old school, yeah. uh, very genteel. And Ipswich clearly were also, you know, you and I are both old enough to remember Ipswich's success in the early 80s Indeed. under Bobby Robson winning the... Uh, Winning the FA Cup as well. When the FA Cup, yeah, when FA Cup Day was a big, big item. Um, so, so they have been very successful. Morris Evans, it, it, it didn't work out. Yeah, you know, and I think that's the politest way you can describe it. Um, and he's been he's been hit financially significantly on the back of this. Um, you know, he 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 put money into the club. Now, then the that the, you could argue that the quality of the decision making wasn't great or. Ultimately, you need more than five or six million pounds a year going into a championship club to, to for it to be realistically competitive. Mm. And I know uh, Steve Parrish, the chairman of Crystal Palace, uh, occasionally listens to this pod, Kieran, and he will be completely baffled by the idea of Accrington getting a hammering and their fans taking it quite philosophically. No. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> There's a man who should definitely not have gone onto Twitter last night. Now, Kieran, we we have. As in every family, Kieran, we have we have problem children, and some sometimes they're the, they're the children we're most fond of. And I think in the past year we've become so fond of Wigan and Derby, even though they've caused us more problems than any other club in the league. And and Derby, just weeks after Wigan have, have had a happy resolution, it looks like Derby County's takeover has also been confirmed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm 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 no stranger to a happy finish, Kevin, as you know, and. Um, <laughs> Uh, we, we we do. Don't make me laugh. I've got a, yeah, I've got a hangover. It hurts me when I laugh. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a four um, one. I've got a four one battering at home hangover. 
this this is a deal which uh, ha- has been announced by Derby. Now it, it's not yet been um, signed off by the EFL. I think yeah, oh, we need right. to just a slight word of caution here. The person involved or the person fronting this is a guy called Eric Alonso. Now, Eric Alonso is a 29-year-old Spanish guy who um, was previously um, involved with Sheffield Wednesday, and he had a fallout with with the owner, Delphon Chancery, and and he left in January. And then, you know, two months later, he appears to be the the person in charge uh, of the, the takeover at Derby. Now, um, I, I was contacted by somebody who said um, he's uh, he's not the main man; he's the front man. He's uh, he's sort of a, a fixer uh, as far as this deal is concerned, and that the real money. Now, now I don't know how how accurate this is, but we we have seen references to it. Um, is that there's a consortium, and the money actually is coming from Indonesia with a guy called uh, Raja Oktahari, who is involved with the Indonesian uh, International Olympic Committee. His father's been a you know, senior politician in the country. Um, and he's also mates with a guy called Eric Tahir, who historically has had uh, part ownership of Internazionale and DC United. And I think he's a co-investor with uh, Mr. Oktahari in respect of uh, of mining operations in Papua New Guinea and Indonesia. As you can see, having no <laughs> football no football on a Saturday, Kevin, means that <laughs> I, I, di- I dive and I dive deep. Yes, well, there, there, were, there were two options for me yesterday, Kieran. It was either drink in the garden with my mates or dive deep, and I went for, I went for <laughs> drinking in the garden with some mates. But, yeah, it's nice to know. It's a reassuring thing for most of us, Kieran, that while the rest of us are getting on with relaxing, there is somebody out there diving deep. On our, you are in fact the fourth emergency service where accountancy is, is involved. <laughs> so this That's is right. not this is not necessarily brilliant news for Derby fans. Is what you're trying to say? Um, I, I think we need to wait for the uh, the fog to clear on this. Uh, I mean, clearly it would be good for Mel Morris, who's uh, who's had health issues, who's mm-hmm. the present owner of Derby, and, and has been very benevolent to the club uh, for him to be able to transfer the club over. Remember, Derby were. Um, we're saying that a deal was going through with uh, Middle East owners in November, and mm. that didn't get signed off. Um, and and there were question marks at the time. Were, were they trying to announce the deal in order to pressurise the EFL into signing off on the owners and directors test? So there's still one or two little little, little flyers in the ointment around. Um, and this guy Eric Alonso, um, yeah, yeah the he, uh, he he is charismatic or character, whatever you want to say. Um, he has been linked, and our silver-tongued friends have pushed back on this. He has been linked with a uh, a, a Spanish political party called Vox, which mm. uh, which is on the far right of uh, Sp- uh, Spanish politics. And he's he said, "Well, nothing to do with me, Gov." Um, but uh, yeah, they seem to have used his picture historically. Now that you know, they might have nicked it for all I know. Um, so it, it's um, it, it's not it's not all cut and dried as yet. Yeah. Whereas we know that 
The Ipswich deal has gone through. We know that the Wigan deal has gone through. Derby, there's still one or two um, items outstanding. Uh, not least, of course, the, the publication of their accounts for the last couple of years. Yeah, I, I'm reminded of Paolo Di Canio saying he had nothing whatsoever to do with Lazio's fascist supporters. He just happened to be waving at a mate when he was photographed on the back of his moped. But um, these next two stories, can I think we, we probably need to rattle through them because we do have a lot of questions, plus the biggest news story ever in the history of the world. And it's at the moment we're in a kind of relaxed Sunday morning kind of mood. Kieran, because we, as people know, we record this. We're not actually doing this live on Monday. That might come as a spoiler for some people. Um, this, this, this next story won't be a surprise or a spoiler for many people. It's what we expected. Seventeen national league clubs have supported the proposal to hold a vote of no confidence um, in the national league chairman and board, even though the chairman has announced his resignation. Yes. So as a result of this, the National League, uh, per its constitution, is duty bound to hold an extraordinary general meeting. And at that EGM, um, the people proposing the vote of no confidence will need 24 votes. Mm. Um, no, not 24 votes. Sorry, they need 75% of the votes. Vote, yeah. um, the clubs in National League North and South have four votes each, and the clubs in the National League... Uh, have 23 votes. Actually, so, so they do need 20, so they need 24 out of 31 votes for this to go through. Um, so I, I think it will be on a knife edge. Um, worst case scenario, majority of people vote for no confidence, but you need 75% for the vote to be carried um, and you you end up with a, effectively a minority government uh, as far as the uh, National League is concerned. So wait and see and watch. Do you think Brian Barwick announcing his resignation was um, an attempt to head this off, to nip this in the bud? I think it's a contributory factor. Uh, he he is an experienced administrator in, in not just football, in other sports as well. Mm. He's 66 and he probably thought to himself, um, if I do this job, I, I, I want to do it on behalf of all the clubs. And clearly on the back of 17 clubs voting just for the, the vote of no confidence uh, for the EGM, um, this is uh, this is a viper pit, um, and, and I'd rather go and you know look after my grandchildren and watch telly. Newcastle fans are launching a bid to buy part of the club, Kieran. Yes, um, this is the Newcastle United Supporters Trust. Um, they are trying to raise money through sort of crowdfunding uh, to buy, even if it's just one to two percent of the club, um, in, in order to have more of a say. Um, the, the trouble is it's going to cost them you know, broadly £3 million per 1%. Oh. So they've got a, it's a lot oh. of money to raise. Um, my concern, I, I full, I'm fully in favour of fan ownership, <clears throat> even if it is minority stakes. Um, who's going to sell to them? Because I can't yeah. see Mike Ashley doing it. So therefore, it will come down to what will the prospective new owners do? I think from a public relations point of view, they, they'd be on an absolute winner. To, to say, yeah, we, we'll, we'll allow you to one percent or two percent of the shares, and uh, you know, and appoint a representative. I think you know it would be it would be fantastic in terms of engagement, in terms of acknowledging the the, you know, the, the passion and the commitment of Newcastle United fans. Um, so, so we wait to see on that. I, I think they have been in touch with the club eighteen seventy two at Rangers, who are trying to buy twenty five percent of Rangers. Um, and uh, yeah, you, you wish them well because I've had I've had a conversation with somebody from uh, Newcastle United and they are uh you know they they're very organized they they they're very 
devoted to to what they're going to try to achieve. Um, and I think if they don't raise enough money, if it doesn't go ahead, um, the money's going to go to charity, which again is is something to to applaud. Yeah, it's it's, it, it's brilliant. I mean, it's a story that we will definitely keep an eye on and uh, hope for the best. Um, and of course, we've spoken to Newcastle United Supporters Trust before, and we will happily do so again if there's anything we can do to help them. Um, Kieran, of course, this is this is the big big news story as far as I'm concerned. Um, Crystal Palace have released their latest figures. Is there Anything of concern? And before you start, Kieran, can I ask you to remove your Brighton hat? Because there were some Palace fans, I'm afraid, who took umbrage yesterday at being advised by a Brighton fan that there may not be anything to worry about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I was a bit confused by that. <laughs> it's just, I, I, you have to acknowledge that all football fans have their share of numpties, Kieran. And unfortunately, some there are some Palace fans who won't take good news from a Brighton fan. It's as simple as that. Yeah, this this was brought to um, my attention by by a mutual friend of ours um, who who's a Palace fan, um, and it, it, they haven't actually published their, the accounts. Um, it was it, it was sort of hidden away at the at the arse end of the website, but there's there's a couple of pages, and um, you know the good news is the the, the income stood up for uh, 2019-20. It was more than West Ham, for example which I think might surprise some people, although it does include the full Premier League season because yeah. Palace, and, and I think they did this very sensibly, um, they, they extended their accounts to the 31st of July. So therefore that included all 38 games from the Premier League last season, whereas those clubs that have only gone to the 30th of June have only got 31 games. Um, they They did lose quite a lot of money, but again, looking at all of the clubs in the Premier League, um, the, the total losses are now running up to £1.1 billion pounds yeah. for 2019-20. So it, it was it was nothing major to, uh, to be concerned about. I think the results will be better this season, despite the fact that we've got no people attending matches. And the reason we, uh, they, they will be better is, is that the clubs have now got more of a, a control over costs. Um, they, they had £58 million pounds of cash in the bank account of the 31st of July, um, you know that's that's uh, you know not too shabby. Um, you know, uh, producer guy would you know, probably sneer at it, but <laughs> you know, for the rest of us, we'd we'd be quite impressed. Yeah. Um, but uh, so, so that that's that's where we are. Um, I, th- I think it would be, I think it would be good of Palace if, if they just put out the full accounts on the um, on on the website um, or, or submitting the companies just to stop the conspiracy theorists. Yes, um, my my understanding is the full accounts are due out tomorrow on, okay. on the website, um, so cool. we can discuss this again on Wednesday. Um, one slide that everyone picked up on is ninety three percent of the income paid out on wages, which is a lot of money, isn't it? It, it is, um, but remember, there's thirteen months worth of wages ah, when, it, when it's covering go. it's covering season. So, so if, if you if you knock off one thirteenth of that, it's down to about eighty six. Again, not. Not great, but we're operating in a pandemic. Um, if, if they were a championship club, that'd be absolutely fantastic. You know, we've, yeah, we've, got, we've got clubs who are who are knocking out you know 150, 160 percent of uh, revenue. So uh, you know, br- you know, broad picture, and, and you've got a benchmark um, against other clubs in the Premier League. Um, it, it's certainly towards the high end, but it's it's not necessarily the worst. 
Okay, <clears throat> it's it's Monday, Kieran, so that means it's Questions Day, and the first question comes from a chap called Kevin Day. He sounds nice, and his question is: Are you absolutely sure there's nothing to worry about, Kieran? Yes or no? <laughs> uh, no, I, I think I think no, they're, I they're, they're, no, solid. they're solid. Okay, Great. nothing to worry so, about. No, solid. That's fine. That's what we're tweeting now. Um, our first question is about Chelsea, which I think might be Guy's idea of a joke. Um, basically, Guy was a bit sniffy because we answered him back in an... No, people don't need to know why, but we answered him back in an email this week, and clearly this is revenge. He's dug up a question about Chelsea to put first, and it's from Adam Bassett. And it's actually a very interesting question about something that a lot of people may not know about. Adam Bassett would really like to hear your thoughts, Kieran, on the Chelsea pitch owners, an independent group set up in the 90s by Ken Bates, who owns the freehold of Stamford Bridge, as well as the name of the club and the turnstiles, and leases them back to the club at a peppercorn rent. This gives a number of benefits, including keeping the club at Stamford Bridge, away from the hands of property developers, and retaining the same name for any Phoenix clubs. Do you think other clubs should do similar? Now, I left a little gap after the name Ken Bates, Kieran, because normally there's a thunderclap when you mention it. Um, but of all the f- things that Ken Bates is infamous for, this seems to me to be a very clever idea in in the long term yes i i think this is the greatest thing Kev, ken bates has ever done um he well, has the, protected that, that, chelsea that's, that, 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 that's not saying much kieran is it really <laughs> you know between electrifying yeah. fences and protecting the club this is the best thing he did right? yes um but i also think it, it's it's really smart the way that chelsea pitch owners was set up um there's presently around about twenty two thousand shares um, in this company, which owns uh, owns the freehold, in effect, of, of Stamford Bridge, it, which it rents out to Chelsea Football Club for 199 years, as you say, the peppercorn rent. Yeah. Um, if, if you want a share, um, you can go and buy a share, a new share. It costs you about 31 quid or £38 if you want it framed. If you want it presented to you on the pitch, it will cost you £200. That's how, that's how Chelsea pitch owners actually carries on because it doesn't right. actually sell anything and the rent it gets back from the club is is buttons um but the the, the really smart thing is that there's 22,000 shares in existence and under the constitution of Chelsea pitch owners no one person can own more than 100 wow okay so this stops somebody coming in and saying to people right you uh, you paid 31 pounds for your shares tell you what I'll offer you 100 quid for your shares Right. And you yep. could potentially get an awful lot of the fans to say, oh, well, yeah, that's, that's a nice bit of profit. I'll, I'll go for that. Um, but by having only uh, a maximum ownership of 100, it makes it really difficult for somebody to force through um, any significant votes because normally you, you build up a shareholding. Um, so unless uh, some you know, nefarious individual starts using proxies to buy single shares from an awful lot of people, um, it does appear that, that Stamford Bridge is, is protected for the uh, forthcoming future. Um, and uh, you know, I, I, I agree that if other clubs had uh, constitutions of this nature, I've said it again there, haven't I, um, that uh, it would help to protect... Um, something which you know you and I both hold you know dear to our hearts that a football ground is is sacrosanct in many respects Absolutely. and the the dangers of new people coming in with a view to flogging off the stadium and converting it into this that or the other is always a concern 
But so there's not a danger also, though, that it, it, you know, it's going to have to be somebody very, 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 very rich to buy Chelsea. Are, are any of those people likely to be put off by the fact that they won't be able to own the freehold of Stamford Bridge? Or is that something that they can live with, as Abramovich obviously has done? Um, given them it's a 199-year lease and it covers the whole footprint of Stamford Bridge, um, I, I think they would be relatively relaxed. I mean, there, there is talk... Um, about extending the ground or moving to a new stadium, but that that's never really moved forwards um, for a few years. Uh, I, I don't think it would put anybody off. Yeah, a, a long-term lease is is in many respects the equivalent of um, owning a, a property. You, you think about many residential properties; yeah. um, you, you'll buy them on with a with a long lease as well, and you still think of it as your property. So it shouldn't it shouldn't uh, negatively impact upon a potential new owner. And also the one thing I didn't quite understand, even when I did a, a bit of cursory research just before my mates turned up yesterday, um, owning the name of the club and the freehold is great. Why the turnstiles? Um, I, th- I think that's just uh, a bit of heritage. Just came with the deal, basically. Yeah. We'll throw the yeah. turnstiles in, fair enough. Okay. Um, our next question comes from Greg Campbell. We had um, a discussion with Neil Doncaster, the head of the SPFL, on our last pod, which got... Um, uh, a mainly positive response. <laughs> uh, that word mainly is doing a lot of work there. But we've had a few questions from Scottish fans this week. And the first one comes from uh, a St Mirren fan, Greg Campbell, who said that recently my club, St Mirren, reported themselves to the police with regards to several historic issues uncovered in their annual audit. Could this potentially be because they are part-owned now by a local charity and they have more stringent accounting practices and is a charity owning a football club unique in British world football world? We know of at least one, Kieran, because we've discussed Chesterfield FC quite recently. But is this this notion of St Mirren self-reporting, which we did cover very briefly a few months ago, is it because they're now part owned by a charity? No, no. The the company itself, uh, St Mirren Football Club, um, is uh, a separate entity. Um, I, I think this was just a review, um, and uh, I, I believe the word shenanigans was involved right. in, in some way, shape, or form when they discovered something had taken place, which was perhaps not uh, not in the best interests of the club. So, um, you know, whilst, whilst there's no harm at all, of course, having uh, charity owned and, and charity accounts, um, you know, the bigger the charity, the, the, the greater the degree of scrutiny you tend to see compared to private limited companies. Um, but it, it, this, is a, this is effectively an investment of a charity rather mm-hmm. than a charity itself. And to answer Greg's other question, in terms of British world football, how many uh, is, is it a more common practice than we think for a club to have part ownership by a charity? Um, I think for some of the the fan-owned clubs, they will set themselves up as charities as opposed to um, limited companies. So it, it gets it gets quite complicated when when you go into the intricacies of, of the legal position. Um, it's it's unusual that that that's for sure. Though, could as as a sort of technical question, could a club like Palace or Brighton, for example, or any other Premier League team, apply for charitable status? Um, it could apply to the the charities commission. Yes, I think it would then have to show what is the purpose um, of the institution from a charitable perspective. Now, given that the the aim of the club is to uh, you know be in the Premier League and th- 
and you know achieve success. Um, it, it might be a little bit more difficult, but clearly, uh, you know, Chesterfield have managed it in terms of, of their ownership structure, so it's it's feasible. Um, I'm, I'm not necessarily sure of the benefits because, um, in terms of raising capital, it might become more complicated. Uh, yeah, present a a club can go to the shareholders and say, "Can we have some more money, or can we borrow more money?" From, from the owners, and that might become more complex in a charitable scenario. Now, <clears throat> club accounts, Kieran, are something that really seem to be exercising our listeners lately, and Neil Holroyd has a different take. Neil says, even if a club fails to submit accounts, are organisations like the EFL still fully aware of the details or what's going on? Because if not, otherwise, how can they make sure clubs are adhering to FFP or not? Yeah, this this is an intriguing issue because um, if you take a look at the charges made against both Derby County and Sheffield Wednesday, uh, both of whom had not published their accounts um, when uh, when the charges were made, part of the defence was, well, if we've not formally published our accounts, then how can you charge us for losing money? Mm. Um, and... This was rejected, is my understanding, when you actually read the the full um, the, the full elements of the the publications which came out from the sports resolution body. But um, where we stand at present is that clubs are still obliged to sell to send in some form of accounts, even if they're not necessarily audited to the EFL who can then assess them to see whether they need to uh, investigate further. But, of course, as we were talking about uh, on the most recent show, we, we now have this somewhat crazy situation where there's a large number of clubs in the championship who are subject to transfer embargoes mm. for precisely this this offence because they've said, well, we've not had the accounts audited yet because that's what the legislation of the of the land says so yeah the rishi sunak's given people an extra 3 months and the efl are saying well yeah never mind the law of the land we're the efl um we we take priority over that and that's left to a bit of a bit of a mexican standoff uh, between the two parties um so yeah it, it is it, it is a, a, a messy issue it it can be used you know for good and bad right do do the efl have the legal right to demand to see accounts, can they say to a club, right, nine o'clock tomorrow morning, we want to see something? Um, under it won't be a legal right, uh, because ultimately the EFL is a company which has a constitution. But if you take a look at the the governance rules of the EFL, um, it does say that uh, accounts have to be submitted by due dates. I think it is the the twenty eighth of February, it's either the first of February or the twenty eighth of February uh, each year for the EFL to review um, because it is possible to charge clubs for FFP breaches during the season. So if, if, a, if, if a club has spaffed a huge amount of money on wages and transfer fees and, th- and those numbers are starting to come through, then effectively your, the EFL is, is within its right. And I, I think this is, this, is, this is the correct thing to do as well. You've got to give them credit for this to say, well, okay, we, we need to see how, far, how much money you have spent this season uh, and we can take action. Because in theory, you could have points deductions for season 2021 for breaches of FFP during that actual season. Although I think it would be a really tough gig to push through because clearly the clubs would appeal and that would be drag on. 
Um, but it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a real challenge for the EFL to try to, to monitor those clubs that don't want to be monitored. I, I pause here just for a moment, Kieran, to urge our overseas listeners and our younger listeners not to Google the word spaffed. There's no need. You can you can probably guess it's onomatopoeic enough, isn't it? Well, it's 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 it's, uh, it's approved by the prime minister. <laughs> well, if that's the if that's the bar we're using, Kieran, then <laughs> if we can, well, Boris Johnson did it. Then it's fine for us. Then we'll. He, he did it many times. Yes, we did. <laughs> I told you I've got a hangover, Kieran. Don't make me giggle. Um, Our next question takes us back to Scotland, and it's a really nice story. Um, Gordon Gall tells us about his club, Arbroath FC, who recently rounded off fantastic fundraising in 2020 with our Buy a Brick scheme. The club raised £75,000 from fans near and far, which is brilliant work. Um, And it's certainly given, says Gordon, everyone involved a lift in a gloomy world. But the question is, with this money raised, how is it recorded in terms of revenue? How much is lost in tax? Or is there a way for the club to retain the full amount? Um, It's it's intriguing, this one. Um, And, uh, you know, hats off to everybody at Arbroath. I do actually have an Arbroath bobble hat. Um, to celebrate them, them winning the, the division the, the other season. So I'm, I'm, uh, they I'm, are a club. I'm sorry, Kerry. I'm scanning that for euphemism, but that's you, you genuinely <laughs> you genuinely have an Arbroath bubble hat. I do. I do indeed. Okay, because it could it could literally mean anything when you say it. I just I just I, I have to go in and say, Ali will say, how is it? I say, well, it's fine, but I'm a bit worried about Kieran. He's got an Arbroath bubble hat. Oh crikey! Well, that, that clears up. Yeah, penicillin does wonders. <laughs> Um, uh, I hope this is the one. This is not the one the BAFTA committee listened to, Kieran. Because again, it'll be another, <laughs> another year will go by without us being. Our mantelpiece will remain bare for another year. Carry on. Sorry. Yes. Yes. Arbroath, brilliant effort. Bubble hat. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so this buy a brick campaign, um, it could be treated as sundry income and is therefore taxable. Although Arbroath did lose money in 2019, and and the way that. The way that the tax system works is that if you if you lose money in in year one, you can use that to offset against your profits in year two. Mm. So there is uh, there is the potential that Arbroath won't end up paying any tax. Um, possibly, as it's linked to buying a brick, uh, they they might be able to claim that it's a some form of loan towards capital expenditure. And therefore, won't be taxable. Um, I, I, it's it's uh, it's it's many years since I last taught tax, so I, I'd have to go into statute for that. Mm. But I, I think uh, I think they'll be fine actually, because they had a they had a relatively modest loss in 2019, and given that they will have also lost money clearly in 2020 and 21 as a result of COVID, um, I think they'll be able to end up paying no tax on any of this. Hi, I'm Steve Lamarck and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight Stuart Dredge on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode we discuss the very latest goings on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works or what the future holds for independent live music venues, 
this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Yeah, it, it gives us another very welcome opportunity, Kieran, as well, to point out the, the very, very, very many positive things that football clubs are doing all over the world. And well, speaking of all over the world, Kieran, it's, it's almost like I'm subconsciously quite good at this broadcasting thing because Dave Bloom, <laughs> <laughs> um, Dave Bloom says, my local team in Australia, Central Coast Mariners, is subject to a potential takeover by a gentleman named Abdul Halu, who promises to, and I quote, shake up the league but whose comments haven't gone down well in the media. Could you check to see if Abdul Halu is a wrong'un and, and whether his bold claims are codswallop? Now, I feel, Kieran, like you should be charging for that sort of service, um, which words you haven't heard since Moscow, I understand. But, um, uh, so Abdul Halu, uh, buying Central Coast Mariners, do we... And it, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, Kieran, because we, we often think on this in this pod, not in an insular way, but just because we are involved mainly in English and Scottish football, we often think that this this idea of um, outsiders coming in to snap up our clubs is is a problem that's unique to us. But of course it isn't. It's it's happening all over the world, as Dave Bloom is, is pointing out. Yes, uh, because uh, football clubs normally occupy prime real estate. Yeah, and ah, that's, a, that, okay. that's a universal issue. Um, so, yeah, I, I took a look at uh, Central Coast Mariners, um, they finished bottom of the A League in 2020, which is a bit of an oxymoron. And then A League's do involve bottoms, so that's okay. Um, so um, that, that they they didn't have a great season, and this guy Abdul Halu um, therefore came to say, "I'm going to be your savior." As as a result of this, and a bit of digging revealed that uh, he's an undischarged bankrupt, uh, according to the local newspapers. Um, he claimed that he had put uh, some form of a deposit into the club. Um, these accusate these claims were rejected by Central Coast Mariners. Um, he apparently had signed a non-disclosure agreement uh, with respect to the club, and then, of course, when talking to the press, which also hacked off the football club itself. Um, and he has also claimed to be a part owner of Spanish club Rayo, Rayo Vallecano. This is where we need to Swiss ramble. Yeah, his, uh, his yeah. multilingual skills are required. Yeah, mine, mine are absolutely bobbins. Well, I'll, um, go, I'll go for Rayo Vallecano, Kieran. How's that? Okay. Rayo, Rayo Vallecano. Yep, yeah, let's go. Um, but uh, no, he, there doesn't seem to be any proof of this either. So, um, yeah, it, when it comes to, you know, and I, I, I'm never going to say definitively that somebody is a wrong but uh, I, I normally go through a tick list, and uh, he appears to be ticking a few boxes uh, with regards to his present position. And all of these claims he was making took place in December, and, and, and sort of we've had sort of a bit of radio silence since then, which could, of course, mean that he is now complying with the non-disclosure agreement, or it could be that he's a fantasist. Okay, well, I, I don't know if that helps or not, Dave, but, I, you know... We've invited ourselves to places like Grimsby and Southend and Plymouth when all this is over. Feel free, Dave, to invite us to Australia for a, a drink to thank us for our services. Um, uh, Dave Bloom, uh, you will be listening. Keep us in touch with, with any further information you get on that story because that sounds like an interesting one in the maker. Phil Chater, um, in the maker, in the making. See, because I knew Phil Chater was coming up, so I changed making 
So the, the inner workings of my mind are not something that people want to listen to. <laughs> generally, really. I, th- I think they yeah. do. I'm, I'm no, Seriously. I, <laughs> I could say, I could just see Ali's face now. I went, oh, we got into the inner workings of my mind. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> you don't want to do that <laughs> Phil Chater says, from a purely financial point of view, taking no account of club histories or international football, could a British league and pyramid work? Uh, yes, because we already have a British league in the sense that Swansea City, Cardiff City, true, Newport yeah. County, and potentially Wrexham. Yeah, yeah, they're they're in the playoffs or not far off the playoffs. Um, as far as the national league are concerned, they they uh, they they play in English football in the English football system. So yes, it, it could work financially. Um, the, there will be clubs in Scottish football, which, of course, as we know, have, have large crowds, so that would help contribute. Um, there would potentially be uh, some more uh, star matches, high-profile matches, which would help in terms of uh, broadcast revenues, broadcast uh, subscribers, figures and things, things which would, would generate uh, additional money there. So could it work? Yes. Um Will it work? You know, Southampton versus Aberdeen at five thirty PM on a Saturday. If yeah. you're a fan, you're yeah. not you're not going to be thanking anybody for that. Yeah, it's bad enough Newcastle having to go to to Brighton and Bournemouth and Southampton and places um, down down south and vice versa uh, with some of the, the crazy uh, kickoff times that we presently have in football. Um, I, I think financially that there are some merits to it, but there will be winners and losers. Um, we presently have you know, clearly the 92 English clubs. We've got the, the 40-odd clubs in Scotland. Um, are we going to have a 136-place um, pyramid? Yeah, that, that gets quite complicated. Below a certain threshold, then the, the transport and accommodation costs, I think, do become prohibitive I think at... Uh, at Premier League and Championship level, you're fine. Once once you drop down into the the lower leagues, then uh, you know it, it 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 does question the logic of this. Although they could be regionalised, of course. Um, I think I think the, the the biggest issue is who who's going to vote for this hmm. because um, you know would uh, would Steve Parish vote for it, for example? Because potentially you've got Rangers and Celtic taking away. Yeah. One of the Premier League clubs, which is yeah. occupied by Palace, the yeah. same for, for for Tony Bloom at Brighton. So, yeah, the 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 non G six clubs in the the Premier League, I think they would be reluctant because they would see potentially they would lose one of their places, which they they existingly have. Would the big clubs in the Premier League vote for it? Well, at presently, you know, six into four doesn't go. If uh, if Rangers and Celtic, um, you know, bring Bring a lot of interest. Does that mean we're now looking at eight into four? Yeah, that's not going to please uh, Joel Glazer and John Henry. Um, would clubs in the Championship be in favour of it? Well, that's again, you've got you know not just Rangers and Celtic. You've got Aberdeen and you know, other other successful clubs in in Scottish football. Um, <coughs> excuse me, who potentially are taking the place of a one of the Championship clubs, but b one of the promotion places when they're trying to get into the Premier League. So I just don't see a lot of enthusiasm for this south of the border. Mm. 
And with the exception of one or two clubs in Scotland itself, I don't see a lot of enthusiasm necessarily north of the border. Uh, so, yeah, we did have this conversation with Neil Doncaster, and I think he gave us a very fair answer you know, on the grounds of you know, never say never in football. Um, but how it would be administered and who would be in favour of it, this is where I have my reservations. Mm. Andrew Lee has a quick question on what he calls everybody's favourite subject, amortisation. And if the answer could be equally as quick, Kieran, that'd be great, because we do have a couple more questions to come. Uh, Andrew Lee says, I recently heard a football journalist on another podcast. Well, that's, that's what you get for listening to other podcasts, Andrew. But this football journalist on another podcast claimed that if Manchester United were to sell Paul Pogba, they would only need to do so for around 25 to £30 million, pound, rather than the £90 million pound plus they originally spent, to make a profit due to amortisation. Andrew says, is this how it works or is that a mistake? No, no, that, that's correct. Let's, let's work through the numbers very, very quickly. Uh, Pogba was signed for £90 million pounds in uh, the summer of 2016. Let's work on the basis of him having a six-year deal because um, it was five plus one. So 90 divided by six gives us £15 million pounds of amortisation a year. So therefore, as far as his value in the accounts is concerned, it reduces by £15 million pounds each year. He will have been at the club for five years uh, at the end of June 21. So therefore, five times 15 is 75. You take away the amortisation of 75 from the cost of 90, which gives us an accounting value of 15 million. Sell him for 25 and you make a profit of 10. Wow. You know, I, I, I generally started sulking a little bit yesterday when we got a question from somebody listening to another podcast, but then I realised... There's millions of podcasts. It'd be childish of me to expect people to not listen, not not to listen to any other podcast. So, Andrew, I apologise, and it's um, I'm actually as surprised by Andrew as the answer to that. Basically, even though I know as much about amortisation as you now, Kieran, although obviously not. Um, Apu Vyas has a has a, a, a question about something we haven't talked about before, and it's an interesting one because Apu says, "How does the taxpayers' expense differ between the two stadium deals that were done by Manchester City and West Ham, both in terms of the initial conversion?" and ongoing costs? It's a good question. We've not made that comparison before because I think a lot of us forget, of course, that City Stadium was a, a multi-sport stadium before they got it as well, as the London Stadium. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, as, as somebody that uh, played for Trafford Cricket Club um, for yeah, 30 years, I can assure you in the dressing room, references to the council stadium were made on a regular basis <clears> between <throat> the, uh, the the squabbling City and United fans with whom I used to... Uh, play cricket so is this a, um, did you say a catholic cricket club no 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 um Tra- trafford oh i was gonna say i thought you said a catholic cricket club is that no, no that would be difficult wouldn't it because no, as soon as you're in you'd be out again so anyway um <laughs> oh i wish i, I just <laughs> That's a gem That's I'm, wasted wasted on this show seriously the rolodex is going is going like crazy in my head now the 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 catholic cricket club algorithm jokes are going all over the place now <laughs> <laughs> but yes, yeah, so this so this comparison is a it's an interesting one, isn't it? Sorry. Yes, yes. I, I actually used to play for a Jewish cricket club. I used to play for Brighton and Hove Maccabi cricket club, which was, <laughs> and, and I played I, I played for it was really weird because I'd play for YMCA on the Saturday, and um, uh, Brighton and Hove Maccabi on a Sunday. So that's very funny. That's it's it's my favourite Barry Cryer joke. It's an old joke, but he tells it very very well about the. Uh, the waiter in a Jewish restaurant saying to three old ladies, was anything all right? 
Yes, yeah, yes. Barry's now become obsessed with parrot jokes, which is another bit of insight that people listening to this pod wouldn't expect to get. Especially when I said we need to rattle through the answer to these questions. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, the, the the key issue, as far as I can make out, is that Manchester City are the sole tenant of the Etihad Stadium, ah. and they um, they are renting it. They are leasing it on a fully repairing basis. So they are responsible for maintenance. They are responsible for any expansion costs. Um, They are responsible for everything. But um, their tenancy agreement um, allows them, and and they did get, I know that they applied for a license in 2012. Um, If they want to have concerts there, if they want to have other sports there, then they are the beneficiaries. So that's that's the nature of the tenancy agreement that Manchester City Football Club have with Manchester City Council, who are the formal owners, who are the freeholders, in effect. If we then move to the London Stadium, West Ham United, and and, the, and this does appear to be semantics, but West Ham United are the primary tenant as opposed to the Manchester City being the sole tenant, which means that West Ham United get first dibs on on use of the stadium, so they effectively say, "Wait, oh, yeah, we 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 can't, we don't actually know when matches are going to take place during the season, um, but uh, we we have first refusal, and effectively from the you know from the you know early from the start of August through to the end of May in a normal season, um, we we will effectively take our 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 period of use there, and that's just for holding football matches. Now the the uh, the landlords who who are effectively the City of London via a company called E20, they can then use the stadium in the period when West Ham are not using it to host other sports. There's proposals for baseball. We've seen Rugby Mm -hmm. League take Mm -hmm. place there. At one point in time, Essex County Cricket Club were going to play their T20 games there, uh, but that that fell through. Um, And and concerts and uh, hospitality issues, etc., etc., um, so there, there is a difference in the relationship, um, and it does mean that uh, that West Ham United are not responsible for the the repairs to the stadium. You know, that that's included as part of their rent. Hmm. So, so they are very different in nature. Whereby Manchester City Football Club, it have the equivalent of you or I buying a house, um, which is, uh, but we don't own the land, right. Whereas West Ham United are more tenants in the sense of you are renting. So therefore, you know, if you, put, if you want to put up new curtains, if you want to go and put in a new shower, you've got to get asked the permission of the other party. So, so cities certainly have a lot more flexibility. And, of course, they're responsible for the costs as well. Right. Um, Declan Moody says, A few clubs have B teams in place of a traditional academy where they have one elite development squad of 18 to 21-year-olds that sits outside the EPP P system, elite player performance plan, um, Brentford and Huddersfield, for example. How many more teams may be likely to follow suit? And will our transition out of the EU cause more British clubs to adopt this model? Um, yeah, this is an intriguing one from uh, Declan. Um, having spoken to people at Brentford, and, and I've understood you know, the, the logic behind what they're doing at Huddersfield, um, the rationale between, in, in the sense of having a B team is that you recruit 
um, players at the ages of 17 and 18 who have been effectively kicked out of the academy system by other clubs. Right. Now, in order for that to work, to a certain extent, you've got to be in a catchment area where there are lots of kids who are being kicked out of uh, apprentice uh, you know, uh, academies. Now, clearly, as far as Brentford is concerned, yeah, they're in London. So there's yep. an awful lot of yep. kid, you know, young men who have not made it for whatever reason. You know, it could be that they've they've not impressed the right people. The players can often be that you know, they can go on to to have careers in in professional football. There's no doubt about that. So uh, we've got Brentford in London. If we take a look at Huddersfield, it's West Yorkshire. You know, th- there's a lot of clubs in a in a 30, 40 mile radius, um, both sides of the Pennines, which uh, Huddersfield can can pick up from. So that's that. That's the pluses. Um, why do it? Well, if you have a uh, a category A or category one uh, academy, the the estimated running costs are at least five million pounds a year because you've got to have education setups. You've got to have certain protocols which are being monitored very carefully by the football authorities. Mm-hmm. Um, even if you're category two, we're talking one and a half million pounds. Mm. Now, this thing called the Elite Player Performance Plan, um, this was introduced a few years ago, and the the Premier League tried to claim at the time we're introducing it because we, we want to um, benchmark standards, um, we want to uh, you know uh, allow a development route through for, for young players and, and give them access to the best coaches. And yeah, that, that that all sounds good. And those clubs that are category one, you know, they they do have some absolutely amazing setups. What it also allows clubs to do is to recruit players from other clubs because historically, um, I think you if, if you were outside of a fifty mile radius mm. of uh, a, a club's training facilities, then you were not allowed to to pick up young players. Um, EPPP effectively abolished this, and it also created a fixed tariff. So let's say that um, there's a really good 12-year-old player at Morecambe. Um, under EPPP, a Category 1 club can recruit that player, and they'll pay a, a fixed sum. It'll be about 12, 15 grand. So it will be absolute peanuts. Um and therefore, the logic behind you know, why have an academy when if we do have a good player, yeah. he can be snaffled away yeah, by yeah, a big yeah, club and we get bugger all yeah. in, in compensation. So so that's why potentially we, we might see more clubs go down the B-team route. In terms of the, the links to no longer being in the European Union, um, it used to be that when the the UK was part of the European Union, you could recruit players from uh, other EU countries who were aged sixteen and seventeen. That is no longer uh, allowable. Um, so again, if, if you're looking to pick up young players um, and put them into your academy uh, from from overseas, it's it's now more of a struggle. Our penultimate question, Kieran, takes us to Scotland, and I suspect the question may be longer than the answer. And it comes from Danny Cow. Uh, and Danny says that Boxing Day saw the passing of the ferocious Dundee United legend Jim McLean, a manager who once punched a BBC journalist square on the coupon live on TV. Um, we don't approve of violence on this pod, Danny, but square on the coupon. 
That's a great expression, isn't it? It's cool. It's got my eyebrows bubble hat on and I got it square on the coupon. Um, Danny says there's been a lot of praise for what he achieved with a small club on a tiny budget. Uh, they won the league, they beat Barcelona in the European Cup quarterfinal, and he was famous for topping up very basic wages with all kinds of performance-related bonuses. Is there a way you could look at the historic accounts of that Dundee United team and put it into a context compared to modern budgets? Um, yes, I... I... Yeah, I, you know, we, I said I'd done one or two deep dives uh, this weekend. I wasn't expecting to try to dig out Dundee <laughs> United's 1984 set of accounts, but but we managed it, Kevin. We, it was uh, success was achieved. We, um, and ha- hats we. off. <laughs> we, we managed it. Yeah, well, I, I assisted by not getting in your way. That's what I always say to Alex. That, exactly. I, exactly. I helped, I helped by not distracting you. <laughs> um. So. In, in 1984, when Dundee United reached the, the semi-finals of the UEFA Cup, and, and, it, and football was sort of brilliant in those days because I really wanted Scottish clubs to yeah. be successful. Oh, yeah, yeah, I was, yeah. Yeah, Aberdeen, Dundee United, it didn't, didn't matter who it was. They were British clubs. And, and also Jim McLean was completely alien to us, of course. Um, yeah, we, 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 his, uh, his somewhat... Uh, Dower demeanour was uh, was was a joy to behold when when you're when you're a young football player. Um, to to put it in context, uh, they got to the UEFA Cup semi final that year, and the average wage paid was two hundred and twenty five pounds a week. Wow! Yeah, wow. <laughs> just, which was just just crazy. Yeah, you know, so you know what 10, 10, 11 grand a year. Wow, um, and this was for this was a football club at the top of its domestic uh, division and beating Barcelona um, in European competitions. Wow! So, so that was that was about a quarter of the the money that uh, that uh, clubs in the English first division were playing. Um, and remember, you know, th- those days they, they, the 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 English and the Scottish leagues were a lot closer because th- there was no TV money. So everything yeah. was based on turnstile money. Yeah, and there was a lot more um, cross-border transfers as well. I mean, every every English first division club had its scattering of of Scottish players, and there was. Um, it's interesting what you say that about supporting British. My dad's attitude is still the same as it always was. He, he wanted Palace to win first, and then he wanted London clubs to win, and then he wanted English clubs to win, and then he wanted British clubs to win. He would happily support a Scottish club in the European game. And days, Dundee and Aberdeen were regular fixtures, weren't they, in the later oh, stages yes. of Scottish football in those days. So, but we can't, it's, it's obviously very difficult to tell what some of those performance-related bonuses would have been at this from this historical remove, isn't it? So, Yes, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, unfortunately, yeah, it, it, that, that degree of granularity uh, doesn't get submitted to Companies House. Yeah, well, also, yeah, you suspect as well, knowing what we know about some of the football in those days, that some of them... Some of some of them may have been just off, off the someone's, someone's put a fiver in my boot. How does that? How did that go there? Um, it's a fiver. That's not even the Sunday League. Our last question comes from Demeshis Sikdar, um, who became a Price of Football podcast ultra this week through our Patreon site. Ultra. We've got. I didn't. We've got ultras now, Kieran. Oh yeah. Um, well, that's nice. Um, uh, Demeshis says, "Could I buy?" And he's he's got a cunning turn of mind here because Demeshis says, "Could I buy two lower division clubs in two different leagues in Europe, and then transfer players between those clubs for inflated values as a way of pumping in money while staying within FFP rules?" 
Um, y- yes, you could because if if we take a look at um, Watford, yeah, they are they are linked to uh, an overseas club, and there's been a lot of uh, traffic between them. We've seen Manchester City um, buy players from Melbourne City and then sell them on at a profit. So, so this is feasible, but we have to be a little bit cautious because our favourite topic, amortisation, comes into play. If you buy a player at an inflated price, that means you've got an inflated amortisation charge, which reduces your profits, which will actually impact upon financial fair play. So so there are both pluses and minuses, um, but yeah, there, there is certainly um, a, a lot of scope to um, park profits and losses in those countries which have more relaxed and less relaxed FFP rules. So, uh, yes, uh, I, I could I could certainly do this. Uh, in fact, I think I, I think I even mentioned it in the Price of Football book. Oh, of course you did. Yeah, I, I, I'm rereading it at the moment. I haven't quite got to that bit yet again, but I remember it from the first <laughs> time around when I read it. So I'll, I'll just slightly distract you there, Kieran, by I'm watching my cat debate with herself whether or not she should deal with the two jackdaws. Oh. in the garden and she's clearly decided that she's not going to deal with the two jackdaws in the garden even though the back door is open and she could do but i'm just they're they're, 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 they're evil buggers they are well they are she's clearly she's clearly decided that she, <laughs> she's by the look on her face she's she's telling them with her eyes that if she wanted to she could but she's decided not to basically um anyway along with debashish we'd like to thank everyone who's become a patron of the pod via the patreon site including as well john burke gavin whitehouse Ewan Heron, Rob underscore BAFC, Trevor Parker, Andy McNeil, Andrew Woodman, surely not the, and in mind, ex-Palace player, Joshua Selig. Hello, Joshua. Barry McMahon, who says, thank you for being in the car with me, brackets on the stereo, as I drive to and from my job as a high school teacher and helping me stay positive through the pandemic. And Rowan Conboy, who says he's delighted to join the Price of Football Ultra family, along with his wife, Kira, and children, Ava, Emma and Nathan, who are all avid fans of supporter-owned Sligo Rovers FC in Ireland. I'm, I'm glad we helped people to stay positive, Kira. And I was going to finish by saying to Barry, we'll be with you in person on those car journeys soon. But it, I thought that sounded a bit sinister. And so a little bit James Corden has strange patterns in his car. That's very cool. awesome. Yeah, I was, I was thinking it sounded more like Uncle Terry threatening to be. I'll be in that car <laughs> one day. But, um, but I'm very pleased to hear that we are helping to keep people positive through a pandemic, which is hopefully coming to an end. If you would like to make a small monthly contribution to our always free to air pod, then go to patreon.com forward slash price of football. And of course, if you have any questions you'd like to ask us about any aspect of football finance, then email us some questions at priceoffootball.com and I shall hand you over to Kieran for his traditional farewell. Well, once again, folks, thanks for the feedback. Uh, if you want to uh, follow the show, just click on the uh, click on the follow button on Apple. Um, if you could give us a review, if a nice five-star review, you can say whatever you want. It doesn't actually matter. Uh, according to producer Guy, um, it's uh, it's just getting those reviews in because it keeps us keeps us in the charts. We do try to get uh, some uh, interesting guests for you, and that's one of the things that they normally ask themselves: Who are these idiots? Uh, and if we're in the charts, it, it adds a little bit to our credibility when we're asking those questions. Other than that, stay safe. And um, those of you looking forward to post-lockdown haircuts this week, I'm with you there. Mm. Yes. It's also, Kieran, I've got to go. There's two jackdaws and a magpie now, so I think I might have to step in. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. The price of football.
provide some photos.